Today's interview contains frank discussion of domestic violence and adultery. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, I'm Nathan Senior. I live in Dewsbury. I love listening to Compelled because the testimonies are raw and real and speak loudly of our wonderful Saviour Jesus who's still at work in our church today. So yeah, I really enjoy listening to it and I'm looking forward to listening to more. I just remember being in our bedroom just blown away that he doesn't care that I really wanted to take my own life. He doesn't care about that at all. He cares that I maybe publicly aired some of our secrets, you know. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, a seasonal podcast using gripping, immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming Christians around the world. It's hard to believe, but after today, there are only two more episodes of Compelled left in this season. It's been a wild ride, and I'm glad you've joined us. Last week, we heard from Josh Howard, an unlikely missionary to India after his family fell apart. But now he's had a front row seat watching God multiply disciples in unprecedented ways. Again, you can hear that story by tuning in to last week's episode with Josh Howard. Today, our guest is Ramona Cherko. For years, Ramona and her husband served in churches together. On the outside, it looked like they had a picture-perfect marriage, but in reality, Ramona was carrying a dark secret. Her husband was emotionally and physically abusive, and Ramona had lost all hope. Until one day, she realized that the source of true hope had never left her at all. So gather round, lean in, and join us for another compelling story from the kingdom of God. Ramona reached out to me about a year ago. She's a compelled listener, and she told me some of her story. We happened to be traveling near her home this summer, so we recorded her. Ramona isn't her real name, and neither is the name of her ex-husband we're using in this episode. They're both pseudonyms. And that's partially to protect Ramona's privacy, but also because Ramona's ex-husband is still alive. And I have no idea if he'll ever listen to this story, but we thought it would be best if we kept everyone's names anonymous. Ramona grew up with a rich Christian heritage from her extended family. Unfortunately, her father rejected Christianity shortly after she was born and abandoned her family and was pretty much a non-factor in her life growing up. Her mom remarried several times and they bounced around to different houses and money was always tight. Ramona made a profession of faith in Christ when she was younger and understood what that meant, but went through a period of rebellion during her high school years with a lot of partying and drinking. But just before she left for college, God worked a lot of spiritual renewal in Ramona's heart, and she recommitted her life to Christ, which is where we pick up the story. My freshman year was a really beautiful time in my life, my walk with God. Um, I got to college, didn't have a car, didn't have a penny. (laughs) My dorm had a room off the lobby. It was like the size of a large bathroom and it had a couch and then a table and a coffee table and it had and the door could lock and I don't know what the room was for it was just a sitting room but I used that as my quiet time room my whole freshman year in the morning I would go in that room lock the door I had my bible and I had a notebook and I continued that prayer that I had started in my home God I want to be yours 100% completely nothing held back whatever you want me to do um 
helped me grow, and God discipled me. And I started memorizing Bible verses. I, I already had a lot of Bible verses memorized before then, but I really picked up on more memorization. So that was my life, my freshman year of college. Um, I didn't date. I focused on two things, God and school. And um, all I did was study or have a quiet time or exercise and eat, and that was it. And come to find out I was smart. I didn't know I was smart. Um, got straight A's. All four years, <laughs> I got straight A's. And uh, I thought I wanted to be a, a Christian counselor. So I majored in psychology. And of course, I knew I was going to have to go to graduate school uh, to be like a marriage and family therapist. So that was my goal going into school. And um, my sophomore year, so I didn't really date. Um, they had this thing called Baptist Student Union, where at noon every day there was the, the Baptist Student Union leader, and he'd, you know, we'd have songs, and there'd be some kind of either a message or a skit or something. That was every day, Monday through Friday. And so I would sometimes go to that. I think it was at one of those BSU things that I heard Adam. And I heard him pray for the first time. And I remember noticing it because he prayed like no one I'd ever heard pray before. It was so sincere. Like you could tell this guy had a relationship with God. He had, I come to find out, a huge crush on me. And um, he had a very strong personality, very strong, strongest personality of anyone I had ever met up to that point. And he was a Christian and he was majoring in youth ministry. And my youth minister had been, after my mom and my grandma, had been the most important person in my life. I had a really great youth minister. So he kind of stalked me for a while. I mean, he wasn't stalking me for real, but wherever we were, if we were both there, he was just always making sure I was safe. What he would do is like, if I was at a basketball game for our school, he would make sure to sit several rows behind me just to make sure I was okay and keeping an eye on me. And that, to me, at where I was in life, was huge. And um, I had no feelings for him, no romantic feelings whatsoever. I liked him as a person, he was really funny and he was very popular and everyone knew who he was. So I felt kind of honored that he had a crush on me. Um, but I didn't ever go out with him because I wasn't attracted to him. But then Christmas of my sophomore year, we went out on our first date and I kept going on dates with him. Uh, they were they were fun, it was fine. Um, again, didn't really have any feelings for him. And then in February, he had had a friend of his make us a really beautiful dinner, roses and candles. And uh, after dinner, he got down on one knee and proposed and I said yes, but I didn't know if I meant it. So I got home to my dorm and, you know, this is still, I'm having my morning quiet times. I'm living really close to God. I, I got on my knees before my bed and I said to God, I only want to marry him if it's your will. I don't know what to do. Please tell me what to do. And I didn't hear anything from God. Like God didn't tell me yay or nay. I didn't get any kind of feeling. I thought to myself, well, I'm walking so close to God right now. I'm sure he would tell me no. Like, I'm sure he would stop me if this is not a good thing. Ironically, Ramona's stepfather at the time, who was a terrible and abusive man, said that he had misgivings about Adam. But considering the source, Ramona ignored him. She didn't hear a voice from heaven that night or a vision warning her away, so she proceeded with the engagement. But before the wedding, there were at least two instances of some serious red flags that came up, which Ramona ignored. 
he was treasurer of his fraternity. It was a little local Christian fraternity, not a national. We didn't have a national Greek system. But he was treasurer, and there was one night where his fraternity called a meeting because a lot of money was gone, and he was the treasurer. And that was the first time I remember having this sick feeling in my stomach, that just dread feeling, like, what's going on? You know, he swore up and down to me and to his fraternity brothers that there's no money missing, or if there is, I didn't take it. It's, it's you know, your records are messed up, even though he was the one that kept the records. That meeting lasted all, lasted all night, lasted until the morning. I finally went to sleep. Um, I waited for him to call me because this is before texting. And he had said he'd call me when the meeting was done, and he never called. And then the next day, he told me it lasted till the morning, and there was no resolution. I mean, that was a red flag. The bigger red flag was about six months later, still, we weren't married yet, he was a part-time youth minister at a church about two hours away. And so he would drive down on Fridays and then he would drive back to our college town Sunday nights after church. And I went with him a couple times and we were on this two hour drive down South to this little country church. And uh, we were talking about debt and he was talking about how he had squandered a lot of the money his parents had given him for college he had borrowed $10,000 from his parents' best friends who had money. Um, so he said, you know, after we're married, we'll have to pay that back. Um, and then he let it slip that um, he had borrowed some money from the fraternity because it was the only way he was going to be able to pay for his last semester. And then he kind of caught himself because he had said to me and to all his fraternity brothers that he had not touched the money. And so here we are. And he just admitted to me six months later he had. He had taken that money. Um, but that he was going to pay it back. That was a big red flag because that was a character issue. Like I said, he was saved. He was a Christian. Um, he was a good youth minister, but he had some character, some some pretty bad character flaws. In retrospect, it certainly seems that these were red flags God allowed her to see. But Ramona was now caught up in the emotion of getting married and chose to overlook those. In 1987, she said, I do, and married Adam. But shortly after getting married, these character flaws she had seen previously cropped up in new ways. We'd been married less than six months. We got in a fight. The areas that I was sinful about, I was not great at submitting at 20 years old. I wanted to be. I, I believed that. I was not a feminist or, I mean, I believed Ephesians. Like, I I had no problem with that, but, I, but it was hard to put into practice. And I remember when we first got married, he was the one paying the bills. And I got the mail one day and I got a bill from the electric company, but it was a it wasn't just a bill, but it it was a termination notice. It it's it was a we're going to turn off your lights, your electricity, you know, 3 months behind. The electric bill was really high. Coming from my background of being poor and uh, just all the turmoil, that freaked me out. Like I, I that really freaked me out. So when he got home from work that day, I showed it to him. And I remember he laughed at me for being worried about that. He's like, they're not going to shut off our electricity. You're worrying about nothing. And I didn't know how, how do I, how do I submit to not paying our electric bill? Like, I don't know how to do that, God. Like, I, I don't know. So my big sin area was I would start yelling. Um, I'd get so frustrated and I was just trying to get through to him, but it would succumb to yelling. And I don't think yelling is a good thing for a marriage. Um, and so the way those fights would end, he would make me submit. And, and so it would end by, by hitting me. Um, 
I don't remember the details of it. I just remember being hit. And I remember thinking, I've only been married six months and this happened? Okay. I had no thought, zero thought of leaving him, divorce. That was not an option. The thought was more like, I'm in for a long haul. Um, this is going to be tough, but I've got God. And God, I'm going to live for you the best I can and support my husband and whatever. Now, to be clear, this was not a good idea. Ramona didn't tell anyone. She didn't confide in a pastor or mature friend, and she certainly didn't tell the police. She just kept it as a secret to herself. And she never brought it up to Adam, and he didn't either. They just pretended like it had never happened. After they graduated from college, Adam enrolled in seminary so that he could pursue becoming a pastor. But the abuse didn't stop. I remember... uh... The second time that he ever was abusive was our first semester at seminary. It was in the fall. We had just moved into an apartment because there was no room in married student housing. We were on a list, uh, a wait list to get in there. We were on the third floor of the apartment complex. The stairs were on the outside. It was a walk up. And I remember that he got really mad at me for something. We got in a fight. I don't remember what it was about. Um, But we had something we had to do. We had to leave the apartment to go do something. I don't know if it was church related or what. He pushed me down those stairs, and um, God protected me. I I wasn't hurt, but I I look back, that was the one time he could have really accidentally hurt me pretty bad. He was so mad at me um, that he pushed me down the stairs, the outside stairs. Ah, yeah, that happened. And again, divorce was not, that thought never came to my head. It was just, we just always carried on like nothing had happened. Um, I never told a soul. I blamed the abuse on my lack of submission. You know, we'd get in these arguments, and then to end the fight, he knew how to physically end the fight because once he was hitting me, I mean, I'd be on the floor, I'd be crying. I was usually on the floor at the end of the, after he hit me. And then the fight stopped and he won. I mean, you know, okay, we'll, we'll do it your way cried a lot, I was depressed a lot, and I blamed myself 100%. I thought if I could just be submissive to him, he won't get so mad and he won't hit me. Um, I don't know if that was true or not because he never stopped. Sadly, this would become a pattern of life. And over time, this constant undertone of being physically abused and then blaming herself for the abuse would slowly skew Ramona's understanding of God's love for her. And in this weird and twisted way, while Adam was at seminary, he began serving as the youth pastor of a small country church and was very successful. The students loved him, and the entire congregation thought the world of Adam and Ramona. But while Adam could be welcoming and winsome to students at church, at home, he could treat Ramona terribly. And for her part, Ramona continued to keep the abuse a secret. She was embarrassed about it and felt conflicted about whether or not God wanted her to share it with anyone. And she kept hoping that if she could simply alter her behavior and be more submissive, that Adam's responses would change. More on that after the break. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. 
If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back, and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that. Because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compelled, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Welcome back to Compelled. Ramona Cherko was sharing how shortly after she married her husband, he became physically abusive. Ramona was no saint, but after they would get into a fight, he would sometimes end the argument by physically beating her into silence. And whether she realized it or not, subconsciously, Ramona's understanding of God's love for her was being warped. And instead of recognizing her husband's evil actions for what they were, her response was to blame herself. Ramona was becoming depressed from the situation and was too ashamed and scared to share with anyone what was going on, which simply led to more abuse. However, I do remember exactly where I was. They were wooden floors. And I remember one time we got in a fight in that little parsonage, and I don't remember what it was about, but the way it ended was he got me on the floor and he just started pounding my head into the wood floor. Um, and I'm sure I had bruises, but it would you know, it'd be covered by my hair. And, you know, I, I, I didn't know what to do with that. I mean, still to a large extent blame myself because I thought God would have told me not to marry him if I wasn't supposed to, which is not a good belief and was not true. Um, my reaction was 
I need to be a dutiful wife and I need to serve God. So hopefully he'll get better. I mean, that's kind of how I dealt with it, I guess. Um, so once he graduated in 92 with his Master of Divinity, he got a full-time youth pastor job. Great people. Uh, but about a week after we moved there, he got really mad at the pastor because he said, they told me my total salary package was going to be 25000 and instead it's 23000 and the pastor's lying. And I knew how bad he was with money, and, and I thought, no one lied to him. I mean, I think he's just trying to get more money. And then he made a huge stink, um, and he started saying bad things about the pastor to uh, parents of kids in the youth group, to people in the church that we became friends with. I mean, at every chance he had, he was talking bad about the pastor. And I knew that's just going to get him in trouble. Um, the pastor is going to get wind of that, and the pastor's your boss. You can't be talking bad about him. You can't gossip about him like that. Well, I'm not gossiping. It's true, and it's he's wrong. And So he hated that pastor from the get-go, and I had that dread feeling um, that I had when that money was missing, and um, the deal had been when he got done with graduate school, it would be my turn to go to graduate school because I still wanted to get a master's degree so I could be a therapist. So that town had had a school, a Christian school that had a Christian graduate program for marriage and family therapy. And I'm like, this is perfect. So I applied and was accepted. And I started uh, fall of 92. And um, I took a huge course load, as heavy as I could, because I I wanted to get my degree as fast as possible because I because he was starting to want kids and I wanted to have that degree before we had kids. So I took huge uh, loads and then I took summer classes that first summer. So I've been summer of 93. I only had six hours left and I would have a master's degree and I'd be able to uh, do what I wanted to do. And um, in that summer, he started saying, I can't be here another day. I cannot be here another day. And I said, can you just wait for one more semester so I can just get those six hours? No, I can't. I can't. So so he started uh, applying at different churches, sending his resume out. And uh, a church in Tennessee, a much bigger church in Tennessee, wanted us to come out for an interview. It was a big First Baptist church of a town out in Tennessee. And uh, he was really excited. And we went and interviewed. And um, he was offered the position. So we left. We, we left that town in Texas. We get to Tennessee, and uh, I loved being there. We were able to buy a house, and I wanted to put down roots and have kids, and my hope was to be able to stay home with the kids. I knew his salary would never be a lot, but I thought, that's not a problem. I can, I can make any place pretty. I can stretch pennies. So I really wanted to stay home. Uh, we had started trying to have kids when we lived in, the, uh, in West Texas, and I wasn't getting pregnant. And, uh, but I, I was still kind of concentrating on school. So I didn't really care that I wasn't getting pregnant. But when we got to Tennessee, we had started doing some infertility stuff, had been on fertility drugs and nothing, nothing, nothing. And that was a real painful thing. Um, all my friends from college and my friends from high school, all the women my age at church, everyone had babies and kids. And I thought, God was mad at me, um, or I thought I wasn't, you know, being a good enough Christian. 
And I remember just begging God for children. And in my head, I just thought, if we just have a kid, everything will be okay. It'll all change. And he wouldn't hurt me anymore. He wouldn't hit me anymore. And he'd start caring more about doing money correctly. We'd bought a house. It was 1995. We had lived there two years, still trying to have kids. And I really liked it there. I loved a garden and in this part of Tennessee, you, you could grow anything and I was happy. Um, the abuse didn't stop. I know that for a fact, but I don't remember any incidents of it. Um, none stand out in my mind, but I know it didn't stop. Um, but we had a large growing youth group. I loved my job. Like I had two jobs. I had my job, my paying job where I was discipling girls and hurt girls, you know, girls who'd been through stuff like I'd been through. And then I had my job as the youth minister's wife. And, you know, Tuesdays we had the middle school's kids over. Thursday nights we had the high school kids over. And um, I was discipling a group of girls. I loved it. I felt used by God. And then one night um, my husband comes home and he's mad at the pastor about something. And uh, this was 95. And it was an echo of how he had been in the West Texas church where he was just bitter. The pastor hadn't done anything. Neither pastor had ever done anything bad to him. He just didn't, he just grew to not like his boss, the head pastor. And he did the same thing he did in West Texas. He started talking bad about him to elders and deacons, to parents of kids in our youth group. And I, I remember the night it started, he came home um, at some point in 1995 and said that he just had no respect for Brother Gary, who was the pastor's name. He had been talking bad about them for a while, and I hadn't really known that. And he came home and he said, um, the deacons and elders want to have a meeting with me. Um, they have something they want to discuss with me. And I knew he had been talking bad about Brother Gary to me. I don't know that I knew he'd been talking bad about him to people in the church yet. But I remember asking him, what is this meeting about? And he said, well, I think it's because you know, about how I feel about Brother Gary. I'm like, okay. So he went to that meeting and I had that feeling in my stomach of just dread. And he came home. This was uh, fall of 95. And he said, um, they are letting me go, but they're not letting me go until June 1st, 96. Because the youth group was doing very well. And we had just bought a house. And so he said, you know, they're giving me until June 1st to find another church, but I have to, otherwise I will be let go on June 1st. And I was just devastated. They left that home in Tennessee and moved away to an entirely new state where Ramona's husband got yet another job as a youth pastor. And they restarted their life all over again. New church, new house, new job, but unfortunately still the same pattern of violence and abuse. They lived there for two years and Ramona got a new job as a secretary at an engineering firm. Because of the constant turmoil in their home life and the terrible mistreatment she was subjected to, Ramona began to believe lies about herself and whether God still loved her. She was in a very vulnerable position, and her boss had a sympathetic ear. And unfortunately, Ramona began developing romantic feelings for her employer. Now, as you can tell, there were a lot of things messed up in Ramona's home. And while Ramona kept this emotional entanglement a secret from her husband and played mind games with herself denying that it was a thing, in reality, in her heart of hearts, she knew it was, and she was plagued with guilt about it. But thankfully, before it developed into even greater sin, 
God was orchestrating events outside her control to remove her from the situation. Adam suddenly got a new job back in Texas. They moved, and all contact with Ramona's boss ended then. And looking back, Ramona is grateful that God moved her away when he did. This new job for Adam was at a megachurch, and professionally, it was a big step up for him. Everyone loved Adam, and the youth group was flourishing. But again, no one knew what was actually going on inside Ramona's home. They had now been married for 11 years, and the physical violence showed no signs of stopping. Ramona had been praying about it for years, asking God to change her husband, but nothing happened. Ramona was still carrying the secret by herself, and she began to despair until her depression seriously began to alter her behavior. I got a job in human resources, and that job was a half hour away. I had planted some flowers in our front area of the house, and they were really pretty. And so what I would tell myself to get myself to work was, you only have to make it till noon. And then I got an hour for lunch, and it was a half hour there and a half hour back. You can come home and, and play with your flowers. You can be with your flowers. And those, for whatever weird reason, that gave me strength. So I did that every day. I would set my alarm an hour early because it took me an hour to get enough strength to get up. And then I'd go to work. Lunch hour, I would drive home to just stand in my flowers for a few minutes, like five minutes literally, and grab some lunch. Um, and then go back the half hour drive back to work. That gave me enough strength to make it from one o'clock to five o'clock. I was so depressed that one night, I this was so stupid, I stopped by a liquor store. I hadn't had a drop to drink since high school and I'm 32 at this point. But I knew, I knew if I drank some alcohol that would calm me down and, and help me not be so miserable. We didn't have any kind of bottle openers or wine openers at home because we didn't drink. So I bought a, a screwed top bottle of champagne. It must've been like the cheapest, yuckiest stuff ever. Um, but I remember doing that and I, I didn't feel guilty. I, I didn't feel rebellious. I just felt dead and I just, I just wanted some relief. I was so, so down. On July 4th, I woke up despondent and I was scared and I, I didn't know if I, if I wanted to kill myself. I wasn't sure, but that was definitely the thought. And it was a pretty strong thought, and it scared me. Drove myself to the emergency room of a hospital because I didn't know what else to do. The ER doc that was on duty, I don't know if he was a Christian or not, but he was an elderly guy, probably in his 70s, and he was the kindest, gentlest man I had, I had ever met. And I'm so lucky that that was who was on duty. And I sat in the, in the room, the examining room and I just started crying and I just started telling him stuff about my husband and how much we'd moved and how he was physically abusive. He was the first person I told. I had never, I hadn't told my mom. No one knew at this point except this doctor and I told him and how depressed I was. And he said something that I thought was, at the time I thought it was kind of a sinful thing to say. He said, uh, you know, sometimes people are depressed because of their circumstances and when their circumstances change, their depression lifts. And I thought that was kind of a simple thing because I thought he was saying, he didn't say this, but I thought he was saying, maybe if you leave your husband, you won't be so depressed. He didn't say that, but that's what I took away from that. And that was when that kind of seed was planted that you can leave. You don't have to be in this marriage. But I had never thought that thought. But he did two things, He good things. He got me on some medicine to help with the depression. 
because I was I was deeply, deeply depressed. And he gave me the name of a counselor, a female counselor. And I got home, this is before cell phones, so my ex had no idea where I was. I had gotten up early that morning while he was still sleeping. And I didn't get home from the hospital for like three hours. So I got home around noon and he was really mad at me. He was really mad at me that I had left him and not told him where I was going. Um, he was mad that I had gone to the hospital. Uh, he was mad that I had told anyone anything about him. He was a very private person. He was very mad about that. And I thought, I just told my husband that I wanted to kill myself. And he's mad at me because I went to the hospital and because I got help. And he's mad at that. And I just remember being in our bedroom after he had done being mad at me, just blown away that he's he doesn't care that I almost really wanted to take my own life. He doesn't care about that at all. He cares that I maybe publicly aired some of our secrets, you know. Everything was on the table at this point, so she went ahead and confessed to Adam about the inappropriate emotional relationship that she had had previously. He was angry about that too, but thankfully did not grow violent. And for once, Ramona was relieved. At least that was no longer a secret she had to keep. But that evening, Adam had a secret of his own to confess. Later that day, in the evening, he came in the bedroom and he sat down on the bed next to me and um, he said, I, I have some things I need to tell you. And I said, okay. And I got, you know, I sat up on the bed. He said, ever since we moved to, to Fort Worth and I started seminary, I have been seeing prostitutes throughout our whole marriage. And I'm addicted to pornography. And I know it's wrong and I'm, I'm sorry, and I, I just wanted you to know that that has happened. And that's all he said at that point. And um, I didn't say anything. He left the room. He went out to the living room. And my first reaction, and this is probably a sinful reaction, was that I laughed because I felt like this huge burden had been lifted. I, I blamed the bad marriage on myself 100%. So when he told me this, my first thought was, I'm not the only sinner in this marriage. He sinned too. I was so happy. <laughs> like, that's so twisted, I know. But I I was so hard on myself during our marriage. And, um, you know, I blamed the abuse on myself. But his motive, I think, for telling me was, I guess he realized how miserable I was that I'd gone to the ER that morning. And so he said, you know, I'm telling you this because I, I, I want us to, to really have a good marriage. I want us to start over. Like, I know there's bad stuff. Um, so when he had left the room, when he first told me, you know, my first reaction was laughter because I was like, I am not the only sinner in this marriage. At some point, I don't think I thought this thought that day, but at some point, the other thought that came to my mind was, that's, that's a legitimate reason for divorce. I mean, adultery unfaithfulness. I mean, biblically, I could live with myself if I divorced someone who was unfaithful because biblically, you know, uh, except for the case of unfaithfulness. So that, that thought started creeping in my head that I, I, have a, I have a legitimate reason I could leave him now. As if being hit was not a legitimate reason. I never thought being hit was a legitimate reason and, and that's sad. I don't know why, you know. I don't know why I thought that 
God would be okay with that. And I don't know why I thought that God, serving God, I don't know why I thought serving God meant staying in that, but I, I thought that. Um, I was so dead by July 4th, I didn't really care what God thought at that point. I mean, I wasn't trying to be actively sinful, but I was just so deeply depressed and, and given up. Um, so he told me that, that day, and then we never talked about it again. I mean, we went, out to, we went out to eat to an Italian restaurant that night, and I asked him more questions, and that's when I found out that it had started way back in 1988. This is 1998. It had been going on 10 years. It had started way back in seminary. It had happened at every place we'd been working at. Everything was falling apart. Nothing made sense. Who were they kidding? Who was she kidding? Their marriage was in shambles. Her husband was still physically abusive. And now all of this sexual sin had been uncovered. Ramona was distraught and didn't know where to turn. And unless something drastic happened, her life would continue to be more of the same, which you'll hear about right after the break. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for Compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical, cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. 
Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcasts' top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to The World and Everything in It. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Welcome back. For the first time, Ramona began to seriously question if God wanted her to unwaveringly stay with her husband. She knew that God wanted them to seek reconciliation, but after Adam had confessed his years of adultery and pornography addiction to her, months had gone by and he had taken no action to confess his sin to church leadership or pursue accountability. In fact, apart from that conversation months prior, he basically seemed unrepentant. After years of physical abuse and adultery and his apparent indifference, Ramona gradually realized that her husband wasn't interested in reconciliation. And while Ramona knew that leaving her husband was never God's perfect plan for their marriage, or any marriage for that matter, it was now on her mind. I got pretty, in my own stupid, silly, immature, sinful ways, kind of rebellious that summer. Uh, I did two things. I stopped going to church in like August. I quit teaching Sunday school and I just stopped going. I, I was dead. I was the walking dead. I just was so dead. And so I didn't care. This is after I knew about his porn addiction and going to prostitutes our entire marriage and then having to worry about, do I need to go get tested for disease? I mean, I didn't know what to do. Um, and I got so deeply depressed that summer. When I was home in the house that we had, if we didn't have people over, if it was just me and my husband, whenever I got home from work before we had dinner and on the weekends, I would go hide. I don't know if hide's the right word because I wasn't really hiding, but the only place I felt safe was in, we had a walk-in closet. And that's where I would have my quiet times and pray, but that was also where I would just go just to be. And I don't know why that closet felt safe, but I spent a lot of time in that closet. And I started thinking about leaving him and I knew if I did it, I, I couldn't tell him. I mean, he, he would definitely physically prevent me from leaving. That was without question. And I was scared. I was always scared that he might accidentally hurt me more than he meant to. Um, I was always scared that during any of the times that he had hit me or anything like that, or like when he pushed me down the stairs. But I knew if I told him that I was thinking of leaving, um, he would never intend to like really hurt me, but I could see him getting so mad that he accidentally like really hurt me. So I knew that if I left, I, I just gotta go. I thought, okay, I can't leave. But it got to the point, at some point in that fall, where I realized it's, it's me or him. If I'm gonna have any chance at surviving and being a human being and just living, I mean, that's just... <sighs> I don't want to die, and I'm dying. I am really dying here. And um, I thought to myself, you know, it really is. It's me or Adam. I got to a point that um, I thought, I think I'm going to do this. I think I am going to leave. I don't know what my life's going to be like, but I don't want to die. So it was Thanksgiving of 98, and I called my mom, and I said, can I come spend Thanksgiving with you? And she said yes. So I flew here to this city and spent the weekend with my mom. And on that Saturday night of that, after Thanksgiving, it was the first time I told my mom everything. I told her about the physical abuse, 
that had started way back our first year of marriage. I told her about him visiting prostitutes um, and having an addiction to pornography. And when I told my mom about the prostitution and the pornography, that is when she finally said, you can leave him. I mean, I finally had her blessing. I had never thought about divorce before that because she had been divorced so many times and I knew she would feel like she had failed me if I got a divorce, you know? And I knew that she would feel like she was successful if I had an intact marriage. And so getting her blessing was a really, really big deal to me. And so that Saturday night is when I decided. And so I decided to do it Monday. My, my flight would get back Sunday. And then I decided Monday morning that I would leave. And um, I told her that, and she said, you can come stay here till you land on your feet. So I flew back home and got in late Sunday afternoon, and I thought, how am I going to hide this from him? I mean, I'm kind of an open book. Is he going to be able to tell that I'm going to be leaving? So I was very nervous. Luckily, he was completely preoccupied that Sunday with church stuff, and he didn't even, I don't even think we interacted at all, so that was good. And then Sunday night, we went to bed, and I did not sleep the entire night. And I thought, this is so bizarre. I am sleeping next to him and I'm leaving tomorrow. And I was scared and I didn't know if God would love me. I, I just, but I knew I had to leave. And so it was uh, December 1st, 1998, it was payday. I got up, got dressed to go to work and I left the house um, at like eight, eight o'clock, drove the half hour away uh, stayed at the office just long enough to pick up my paycheck, a paper check. Uh, the check was for $1,000. And um, I remember I felt so guilty that I knew I was going to leave him that I deposited 900 of the $1,000 in our joint uh, account. We only had one account. And I only took $100 cash for myself. Even though I knew I was going to be driving three states away, that's what I was going to come with was the $100 because uh, I just felt so guilty. I mean, I, it was my paycheck. I could have... People I've told that story to have said, why didn't you just take all of it? I'm like, no, I just felt too guilty. So I had the $100 cash in my purse. I got home at some point a little bit before 9 o'clock. He had left for church. Our church was uh, five minutes away from our house. Our kitchen windows faced the street, and I could see our driveway from our kitchen. Our bedroom was upstairs. It was a two-story house. And then our garage was next to the kitchen. And I, so I pulled my car into the garage, shut the garage door, opened up all four car doors of my car. And for about five, 10 minutes, I would run upstairs to my bedroom, grab as many clothes as I could, run downstairs, look outside to make sure he hadn't driven home because he often did come home during the day because he lived so close. Like, so he'd come home and I don't know what he did, but um, so I always looked out the window, make sure he wasn't there. I just had a feeling he might come home and catch me in the middle of this. And that would be very, very bad. Something very bad would happen. And so then I'd go in the garage, I'd throw the clothes in, did that for about five, 10 minutes. And then I was ready to go. I had everything. And I thought, okay, how, how am I going to leave a note? What am I going to do? And he loved to watch TV. That was he was big into sports and he, he was either working doing his youth ministry stuff or he was on the couch watching TV. So I found a sticky note and I wrote, I'm going to this city that I live in now. I don't know if I'll be back or not. And that's all I wrote. Put the sticky note on the TV, um, grabbed a few last things, got in the car. He hadn't come home and my heart was like pounding and I left. And I remember I saw the church as I drove away and his car was at church. 
I left at nine o'clock that morning. I looked at the clock. He came home at 9.05, came home five minutes later, but God kept me safe. God did care about me. I did not know that. It took me three hours to drive to get to Fort Worth, Texas, about three hours, I think, on I-35. And that whole way, I am sobbing. I'm crying. I'm feeling so guilty. I'm, I'm leaving this big church, you know, I'm going to cost him his job. Um, and I got to Fort Worth and I changed my mind. And I thought, this is not right. I cannot do this. This is wrong. And God will not honor me. I need to turn around now and go back. If I turn around now, I will have been gone for six hours and I can get home before he ever gets home and I can unpack my car before he ever gets home and he'll never know the difference. But instead of turning around, what I did was, my mom was waiting for me. She, she knew I was on my way. And so I thought I better let my mom know. And I didn't have a cell phone. I don't know if we had cell phones back then, but so there was a big truck stop on the north side of Fort Worth. And I pulled into that truck stop and I found a payphone and I called my mom. And my dear sweet mom was so wise because I was crying and I said, mom, I can't do this. It's wrong. I'm, I'm gonna turn around and go back. And she said, you can always decide to go back later, but right now, just just keep driving north. You, you, need, you need a break. You need to just come and heal a little bit. And then when you're doing better, you can decide. So this doesn't necessarily mean you're leaving him. You know, it's just a break. And that was very wise. What she didn't tell me is that when he had gotten home to our house five minutes after I left, he saw the note, he called the all the male staff of the church and the elders, a group of men like descended on our house, um, about 20 men sat there in the living room waiting for me to get back. And um, they, they were gonna like commit me. Adam told them I was a lesbian um, and that's why I left. Um, I'm a lot of things, but I've never struggled with same sex attraction. <laughs> that is not one thing I am. And he also gave them the impression that I had fallen apart. That part was true. I had fallen apart. Um, and so, yeah, they thought I had some sort of major mental break. I had, but it hadn't been that day. I mean, I'd been breaking since July 4th. I was sobbing and sobbing and I felt so guilty. And I heard God say as plain as day, don't you know, I love you too. And I absolutely did not know that. I had known that at some point, but at some point I had forgotten and that, was really wonderful and I had not known that. I had not known that. I thought God would be so mad at me for leaving a minister. And, uh, but I heard it clear as day. Don't you know, I love you too. I'm like, I didn't know that God, please forgive me. And I mean, I was just crying and I didn't turn around. I listened to her and I just kept driving north. When I got out of Texas, I felt a little less scared and my adrenaline calmed down a little bit. When I got out of Oklahoma and into Kansas, I felt even better and I started feeling a lot better. Um, and then by the time I got here, I was glad I had kept going. And that was pretty much the end of that chapter of Ramona's life. They divorced the next year and she's never seen Adam again. He left the ministry shortly afterwards and never re-entered it. And that was all 24 years ago. Ramona eventually graduated from law school, worked as an attorney for her state attorney general's office for about a decade, and has now been serving as a judge for the last nine years. Ramona eventually did remarry, and she and her new husband have been married for 19 years and have adopted a daughter and son from China. 
But while many things got better, on a spiritual level, Ramona really struggled. For that first full year after I left him, I just lived in guilt. I I really did. I felt so guilty. I felt so wrong. I mean, I remembered that God had said he loved me too, but I just felt guilt. After the first year, when the guilt went away, I started getting angry. And I was angry at my ex. I was more angry at church. I saw a lot of bad things, not just with him, but other men on staff. I, I, I just saw a lot of immorality. You know, how many sermons did I hear about submission? And yet I heard not a single sermon about pornography or sexual sin or men. Men, this is a serious sin. Stop it. If you're doing it, stop it. You know, nothing. So I started getting really bitter and angry. So I quit going to church. I was angry at God. And the number one thing that Satan used to trip me up was you pray to God on your knees that God, should I marry this person or not? And, you know, God could have given you a sign and God could have told you, no, don't marry this person. It's going to be really pretty miserable. And he didn't. And Satan, he used that. That's what he said to me. I believed it. And Satan used that for bitterness and anger. And so I quit going to church. I quit having my quiet times. I quit praying. I quit memorizing verses. You know, once my husband and I got married, and especially once we had kids, I, I definitely wanted my kids to be raised in church, just like my mom had wanted me to be raised in church. But just like she had been mad, I was mad. So I would go to church sometimes to take our kids to church, but my heart was definitely not in it. I was prickly towards pastors, um, towards male leadership. I wanted nothing to do with a church that had a strong male leadership. Instead of dealing with those issues and bringing them to God, I just kind of threw it all away. But I didn't want to really throw it all away. So I, every once in a while, like maybe once or twice a year, I would have a quiet time and I would repent and I would ask God, help me to get back to you. But then I'd have no follow-up. Ramona was deeply broken. But sometimes it's in our brokenness when God will begin to make anew. In fact, her story reminds me of Naomi from the book of Ruth. Naomi's husband dies, both of her sons die, and she returns to Israel so broken in spirit that she tells her old friends to stop calling her Naomi and instead to call her Mara, which means bitter. But just like he did for Naomi, God still had a redemption plan for Ramona. That moment happened for Ramona three years ago in 2019 while she was driving her car scanning the radio when she stumbled across a pastor preaching a sermon. She didn't especially care for the pastor, but for some reason, she paused to listen. Whatever reason, I listened to his sermon, and it was, he only has one sermon that he preaches over and over again, um, which is basically God loves you, and you can, you can do all these things, you know, you're great, which is not necessarily my theology, but the part about God loves you, I didn't think God did. I, I thought for sure God must be mad at me that I had left him. You know, that I wasn't working on my relationship with him. Um, I didn't know how to come back to God. And so for about, I don't know, a week or two, every day, back and forth, the drive to work and the drive back, which is like a 20-minute drive, I would listen to these sermons about how much God loved me. And that started softening my heart, but also making me realize God's not mad at me. He just wants me back. You know, he wants to have a relationship with me. 
So one day I uh, happened to tell my mom, and she's like, why don't you try listening to this guy, Francis Chan? I found him and he's pretty good. So I listened to him for a few weeks. It went from just listening in the car to I garden a lot and I also exercise a lot. My exercise now is going on like long, I call them shuffles. And so I was always listening, either in my gardening or driving or whatever, to different sermons. Um, and when I was not listening to the car radio, I was listening on YouTube, and YouTube starts giving you suggestions based on what you listen to. So I kept seeing this thing come up, uh, the most shocking sermon ever, and I, you know, I'm very skeptical about things, so I was rolling my eyes. I thought, oh, this is like clickbait, like whatever. But I listened to that sermon, and it wasn't that shocking, but it was very good and very much about um, being holy. And so then I just started listening to a lot of Paul Washer's sermons, and I loved him because he was the first pastor I heard be hard on sexual sin, and I appreciated that. And I'm like, amen. I remember being in my garden, and I had ear pods in, and I remember like saying super loud, amen. <laughs> and um, long story short, spring of 2019, God came back for me. He did. He he had never left, but he he made himself known. I cannot tell you how many times I was on my knees in my office repenting of everything from the last 19 years, sobbing over the knowledge that God loved me and just seeing how his hand had been with me through all of this. And then Kind of, I had like a whole spring of just repentance, day after day after day, and and since then I've had a whole 19, three years of a relationship with God that is more beautiful and deeper than I've ever had. I weep all the time, almost daily. The tears now are not from guilt or from repentance, although sometimes they are, but a, a lot of it now is just the realization of I'm 55 years old now. I have a lot of perspective now, and I see that God has had his hand on my life since the day I was born, and he knew all these things were going to happen. So I guess I would just end by saying, if you're mad at God, don't waste 19 years of your life like I did. You know, I regret that. I, I wasn't out doing awful things. I mean, I was adopting two special needs kids and you know I was not doing bad things but I was not living for God I was doing what I wanted to do I appreciate you sharing this story I can't wait for others to hear that and hopefully they will be encouraged as well as they face different things in their own lives yeah I hope so too I hope anyone who's bitter against God will stop it and just come back he loves you as I've thought about this story four things have crossed my mind first Sin breaks everything. Marriage, relationships, trust, and everything else in between. Ramona's story is very sticky and is not a picture-perfect paint-by-numbers fairy tale. Ramona's ex-husband made terrible mistakes and Ramona did too. Sin compounds on itself and drives home our dire need for Jesus to redeem and restore. Second, looks can be deceiving. Ramona's husband led a thriving youth ministry, but was engaged in adultery and physical abuse the entire time, and yet no one knew. If there were warning signs, no one acted on those, which is tragic. Third, domestic violence is serious and is not something to be taken lightly or brushed under the rug. Yes, Jesus calls us to forgive and love those who persecute us, but that does not mean staying silent and telling no one. 
In fact, I and Ramona believe that is the worst thing that someone suffering from domestic violence could do. Instead, one of the most loving things you could do to serve someone who is hurting you is to seek help from wise Christian counselors in your life and to appeal to church authority and civil authority. Of all people, Christians should have zero tolerance for physical abuse, and that is non-negotiable. It is sinful, it is serious, and it is unexcusable, and should always be treated as such. Christ sets a high standard for Christian conduct, not a low bar. And fourth and finally, Ramona began suffering from domestic abuse 35 years ago, and she escaped 24 years ago. But then for 19 years, her relationship with God grew cold and stagnant. But during that entire time, God never left her. In fact, just like as described in Matthew 18, Jesus left the 99 sheep to seek the one sheep who had gone astray. At a moment when she wasn't looking for him, God was waiting for Ramona with open arms ready to pick up and reassemble the pieces of her broken heart. If you've been the victim of domestic abuse and have been carrying that burden silently, please do not carry that silently anymore. Ask God to direct your path and seek help today. And even more importantly, God is waiting for you right now with open arms ready to meet you just like he did for Ramona. There's way more to share on the topic of abuse, and we'll include several helpful links in our show notes about domestic violence and appropriate Christian responses to it. Just visit compelledpodcast.com and search for this episode. If you know someone who should hear this story, please take a minute and share it with them. You don't know how it might change their life. And if you'd like to help us create more stories like this one, then join Compelled as a monthly Patreon supporter. As of today, when I'm recording this, we have 46 patrons, for which we are so grateful. But perhaps you could help us bump that number up to 50. Get started at compelledpodcast.com and click donate. Finally, if you're looking for a podcast app on your cell phone, then we recommend our sponsor, CastBox. Their app is simple to use and lets you download episodes ahead of time to listen to when you're offline. And it's free. Learn more at castbox.fm. This episode was edited by Will Jackson. Our sound engineer is Zach Thaler, and our associate producer is Sarah Hastings. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's story with Kane Kellerman. Kane first became addicted to heroin as a 10-year-old, and his life quickly spiraled out of control after that. But after being incarcerated for robbing a 90-year-old man, Kane was stunned to receive a letter of forgiveness from his victim. Would this man's God forgive him too? I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday. He was saying that he wished he could try to take the charges off of me because of Jesus forgiving him that he forgives me. This old man, I was stealing all the money from him. What he lived on, it was social security. Jesus shone through him enough to forgive me that way. I remember reading that on my bunk, and it, it broke my heart. One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th. The other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th, 
And there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com events. And I hope to see you there.